Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with the correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. Today we'll be hearing from Bruce C.E. Fleming, founder of the True 316 Project. He's a former academic dean and professor of practical theology. The foundation of the True 316 Project is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book on Genesis 2 and 3 titled, Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 and 3. Now enjoy today's episode of the Eden Podcast. The focus of this episode is 1 Timothy 2, 13-15, How Eve and Paul Were Alike. What's this, Dad? I asked, picking up the flat and pointed piece of chipped stone. That's an arrowhead, son, he replied. What's it doing here, Dad? Ah, that's a great question. What's this doing here is what many ask when they come across the verses that are numbered as 1 Timothy 2, 13-15. They ask, why do we find these words in this place? One could say we have several figurative arrowheads to consider in these verses. Why does Paul here bring up the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve? Did they have something to do with the wayward women leaders Timothy was correcting in Ephesus? What? Where in the text does the reference to Eden end in these verses? Why does Paul bring up the birth of the child in verse 15? And who are they at the end of verse 15 in 15b? These questions can all be answered. We can answer them now because we've asked the right questions. We can answer them because we have looked at the context and the main actions Paul is recommending in 1 Timothy 2.8 to 3.16. We can answer them because we are not off the track, wandering in the weeds, looking for the answers to the wrong questions, which I'm afraid so many have done. Let's look at the literary structure of the passages Paul presented these ideas. As we do, we see where verses 13 to 15 belong in the development of Paul's thought. He has not written a linear progression of ideas in a one, two, three manner. He has written using a rainbow pattern of parallel ideas. The main idea is in the middle. On either side are ideas that echo and complete each other. Because verse 9 has no verb and begins with likewise, we have to start back in verse 8. Then come verses 9 to 15, which are Paul's focused advice about correcting in order to restore to ministry the subgroup of wayward women overseers in Ephesus. In verse 8, Paul gives a command to Timothy. He wishes for the wayward men overseers to preach and pray in public worship with holy hands, not tainted by sin, with sound doctrine, which is not a source of angry disputing. In verses 9, 10 and 12, Paul gives a parallel command to Timothy. He wishes for the wayward women overseers to preach and pray in public worship with proper outward dress and behavior. In verse 11, Paul makes use of this passage's only imperative verb where he says, let these women learn as good students paying attention. Then Paul opens a parenthesis in verses 13 to 15a before he returns in 15b to advice that parallels his earlier advice. That advice concerned the formerly wayward women overseers Timothy was to retrain and restore to ministry. Verses 13 to 15a serve as a digression. In them, Paul justifies the course of action he is recommending. 
he explains why he is prescribing such gentle correction for them. Remember, with the wayward leaders Hymenaeus and Alexander back in 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul turned them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. But with these women wayward overseers, he's recommending a very different kind of teaching. They are not being handed over to Satan to be taught. They are to be allowed to learn and get retrained as good students from Timothy himself, or by Priscilla, or by other faithful overseers in the church at Ephesus. Here's my paraphrase of verses 13 to 15a in the context of verses 211 to 31. Starting with verse 11, let the women overseers who were wayward learn in quietness and with all studiousness. I'm not permitting them to teach men in an incorrect way, but to be retrained in quietness. Why? For God formed the two in the garden, Adam and then Eve, and Adam was a first-degree eater. He was not deceived, but sinned on purpose. But Eve was deceived, and as a second-degree sinner, to that degree she became a transgressor. But she, Eve, would be saved through the birth of the child who was to come, as will the women you are retraining if they persevere in faith, love, sanctification, and self-control. And then here's three one, Faithful is Jesus, the Logos, the Word, So if any one of those you are correcting aspires to oversight, that woman or that man desires a good work, like Paul, like Eve. Why? The Gospel of Mark recounts how Jesus' disciples were slow to learn the lesson of the multiplied loaves. First, Jesus fed the 5,000 from a few loaves and some fish, Mark 6, 35-44. A second time, Jesus multiplied a handful of food into enough for 4,000 people. Mark 8, 1 through 9. A little while later, Jesus and his disciples found themselves in a boat with just one loaf of bread. The disciples were hungry and began to worry. Oh, what could they do in these dire straits? Carefully, Jesus talked to them about their cares and about their blindness to his power to provide for them again and again. He reminded them of all that had happened, yet they still didn't understand. Mark eight fourteen to 21. They needed to be told again. In similar fashion, just in case his message has not been fully understood, Paul adds several more verses in 1 Timothy 2. He wants to make sure his instructions about the correction of the errant women teachers are clear. Why does he recommend retraining these women? In verses 13 to 15a, Paul calls attention to relevant details from the Garden of Eden, because intent counts. Paul starts verse 13 with the conjunction for in Greek. He gives a reason for what he's just recommended. Then he refers to Genesis 3. In the Garden of Eden, there were two kinds of sinners, and in Ephesus, where Timothy was, there were two kinds of sinners. One, sinners who were deceived and sinned, and two, sinners who knowingly and defiantly sinned. In verse 13, Paul draws a clear distinction between the first man and the first woman. By referring to their two distinct creations, he focuses attention on them as two distinct individuals. Verse 13, for Adam first was formed, then Eve. The lesson of verse 13 isn't who was first, but that there were two individuals created in the beginning. First one, then the other. Paul further distinguishes between these two by using the names Adam and Eve. The use of these names in their historical setting is strikingly anachronistic. The woman was not called by the name Eve until Genesis 3.20. 
Yet Paul uses that name Eve, referring to moments in history in Genesis 2 that occurred before she was known as Eve. Similarly, the name Adam did not refer only to the man at the point in time referred to by Paul in 1 Timothy 2.13. The name Adam could refer to them both, as in Genesis 5.2, he called their name Adam. The man took the name Adam for himself only after God judged him. Breathtakingly, the man rebelled one more time after God spoke to him in Genesis 3.17-19. This was another act of rebellion and self-rule as opposed to submission to being ruled by the Creator. The man had named the animals who were subordinate to him in the Garden of Eden before the woman was created. He used the naming formula and called them their names. This is similar to the naming formula used today when the ruler of England says, I W sir so-and-so. The first chance the man had to respond positively to God's speeches to the serpent, to the woman, and to him, he responded negatively. He called the woman a name, using the naming formula he used for the animals. He presumed to rule over her by naming her and treating her just like another one of the animals. How was she to respond to that? God was her creator. God alone was her ruler. God was their ruler. What to do with a husband who presumed to usurp God's role by ruling over her in this way? Two kinds of eaters. This is important to understand. In 1 Timothy 2.14, after in verse 13, distinguishing clearly between the first two individuals at creation, Paul focuses on why and how each individual sinned. While it is clear that each one in the garden is disobedient to God's command, the following differences exist between them after the attack by the serpent tempter. 1. The man was not deceived. He sins deliberately and knowingly. Genesis 3.12 2. The woman was deceived, and only then does she sin. Genesis 3.13 In the garden, God takes these differences into account when imposing judgment on the serpent tempter, on the woman, and on the man. God imposes a curse on the serpent. The Hebrew word curse is used. Using words in a parallel way to his words to the serpent tempter, God imposes a curse on the soil. This second curse is because of the man. The Hebrew word for curse again is used but it is only used these two times. No quote-unquote curse is imposed on the man or on the woman. Significantly, no curse is imposed because of the woman, as had occurred because of the man. In Genesis 3, the Hebrew word curse only occurs in reference to the man and the serpent tempter. There's something very different between the man's motives and actions and hers. There's something very different in the way God treats the one and the other of these two humans in Eden. How does Paul know the woman is deceived? In Genesis 3.13, the woman says so in an accurate admission to God of her wrongdoing. In 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul notes that the man is a different kind of sinner. He wasn't deceived. This distinction drawn between the two sinners is a distinction for Timothy to follow in correcting those who had gone astray in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul referred to how God had judged him gently. Discerning Paul's intent, God dealt gently with him and even put him into ministry because he had acted ignorantly and in disbelief. 1 Timothy 1.12 In modern-day courts, even murderers are judged differently according to their intent. There is murder in the first degree for those who kill on purpose or with malice aforethought 
And there is murder in the second degree, or manslaughter, for those who kill, but not with malicious advanced planning. Murder, one, receives the harshest punishment. Manslaughter merits a lighter sentence. Paul had been a second-degree sinner. The way God dealt with him as a second-degree sinner is the way he wants Timothy to deal with those at Ephesus who also sinned in the second degree. The women described in 1 Timothy 2, 9b and 12 are to be treated like Eve and like Paul, who had not sinned on purpose. He's to let them learn, and emphatically so. He says, let learn. To underline this in verses 13 and 14, Paul refers to the two sinners in the garden in a different order from when each one sinned. If Paul had been preoccupied only with details of timing in Eden, he would have referred first to the woman and then the man. The woman ate first and then the man. Instead, he twice refers to Adam who sinned on purpose. Here's my paraphrase for verses 13 to 14. For God formed the two in the garden, Adam and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived and to that degree became a transgressor. Don't be deceived. Some people charge that since the first woman was deceived in the garden, all women are more easily deceived than all men. But Genesis does not teach this, neither does Paul. Even though the man and the woman were co-regents over the earth by the Creator's decree, Genesis 1, 27-30, some people claim that the timing and the creations of the man and the woman makes the man superior in some way. Indeed, this was the position held by the rabbis at the time of Paul. They thought that a theological consequence could be discerned behind the sequence of events in the Garden of Eden. C.K. Barrett, Pastoral Epistles, page 56, quotes their midrash, Adam was first in creation, Eve first in sin. Surprisingly, John Calvin held to this position. Even so, he found himself compelled to argue against it, admitting in Commentaries 21 that any theological conclusions based on the order of creation appears not to be a very strong argument in favor of her subjection, for John the Baptist was before Christ in the order of time and yet was greatly inferior in rank. Verse 15a, Closing Thoughts on Eden It may seem tiresome to work our way over one interpretive bump after another, but as every good road builder knows, it's important to keep leveling the roadbed until it becomes flat and serviceable for all those who follow. In verse 15a, there is one more noticeable bump that needs to be smoothed out before the entire passage in 1 Timothy 2 can be clearly understood. It has to do with Paul's reference to the childbearing in Greek. According to the Greek, in the first part of verse 15, Paul writes, But she will be saved through the childbearing. The singular pronoun she of verse 15a refers to the woman who is discussed in verses 13 to 14 just before it. She is Eve. The childbearing of Eve refers to the future birth, future for Eve, of the promised child, capital C. Mary was the physical mother of Jesus, but Eve was his ancestor. Eve's childbearing resulted in the eventual childbearing of Jesus. The word childbearing is a collective singular noun, a single word packed with the promise of many. This way of speaking may seem awkward to the modern reader, but it's used twice in Genesis 3 when God first gives the promise of a Savior. In Genesis 3.15, God gives the menacing promise to the serpent that the seed, 
or offspring of the woman, will crush his head. The word seed is a collective singular noun. In the Hebrew wording of Genesis 3.16, line 1, God promises the woman that she will have multiplied conception. The word conception is also a collective singular noun. Looking back at the Garden of Eden from the perspective of history, one can identify the promised seed of verse 15 and the conception of verse 16 as Jesus. Paul's use of the collective singular noun, the childbearing, in 1 Timothy 2.15a in the context of a discussion on the Garden of Eden brings to mind Eve's promised offspring. This would have been recognized immediately by Timothy and the Jewish Christians at Ephesus as a reference to the promised one, the Messiah. Eve would be eternally saved through her forward-looking faith in the coming birth of the child. The women in Ephesus are saved through their faith in this same child as well. Each one of us today faces the question of this child. What will we do with Jesus? Because in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning, there had been an attack. Because the man and the woman were now mortal and hiding from God in Eden. Because their perfect union with God had been ruptured, God promised the certain conception of the seed of the woman. Why would God promise this? Why would God bother to do so? We learn over and over again in God's revelation in the Bible that God sent Jesus into the world because we need a Savior who will die in our place. When we ask God to forgive us and to send the Holy Spirit into our heart in new birth and the start of everlasting spiritual life, it's like we have one foot already placed firmly in heaven. We have the assurance repeated over and over again in the Bible that when we die, God will pull up that other foot too. We instantly will be with Jesus firmly standing in heaven. The best Bible verse on this is that other 3.16 verse. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 3.16, God promised Eve that truly she would have conception of the child who would crush Satan's head. In the New Testament, in John 3.16, we have this promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Once again, we see the love of God reaching out to us. We see God helping us return back to Eden in a perfect relationship with God with no break to ever occur again. This complete summary of Eve's situation in 1 Timothy 2, 13-15a as a deceived sinner in the second degree, who is going to be saved because she places her faith in the coming child, allows Paul to move on to a summation in his instructions to Timothy. He does this in the second half of verse 15, in verse 15b. In verse 15b, Paul changes subjects. He moves on from a singular subject, she, to a plural subject, they. If the first half of verse 15, verse 15a, had been counted as the end of verse 14, we could see this more clearly. Perhaps it's best to think of 2.15b as a new verse, or verse 16. In these words, with the plural subject, Paul encourages once again the women who are learning, per his command in verse 11, to follow the wholesome pattern of those who have been right living overseers all along, as he has described them in verses 9a and 10. He names four aspects of right living and teaching that must be evident in their reformed lives if they remain in faith and love and sanctification with all seriousness. The good news is that God gives John 3.16 to us today. It is good news that was promised back in the Garden of Eden. 
It is good news that actually took place as Jesus hung on the cross and died for our sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of all who believe in him and receive his gift of payment for our sins. Does that include you? If yes is your answer, then I rejoice with you. Does that include you? If not yet is your situation, then I encourage you to pray to Jesus right away. Ask his forgiveness. Ask to be born again and for the Holy Spirit to come live in your heart. Like Eve, you too can be saved through the birth of the child. You've been listening to the Eden Podcast. And we invite you to visit our website at true316.com. That's T-R-U-316.com for links to our books, blog posts, and our YouTube channel with more than a dozen in-depth workshops on the seven key Bible passages on women and men from Eden on. You can also receive a study guide on this episode for use in small groups and more. Find that in our blog posts at our website or email bruce at true316.com to request the study guide. The Eden Podcast is brought to you by the True 316 Project. True316.com You can help move forward the True 316 Project. Please visit patreon.com. And thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast. Podcast.